Now, David has been recognized as king over the whole land of Israel, and he begins to deal with some of the things that were either left undone or just correcting the errors of his predecessor, King Saul. Now, years earlier, Israel had suffered a great defeat at the hands of the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of (coughs) Israel's fighting men. And this painful and humiliating defeat led the nation of Israel to say and ask the Lord, why has the Lord defeated us today by the Philistines? Now, their decision based on that defeat was to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh to the battle theater as kind of a good luck charm. They thought maybe the Ark of the Covenant would help them turn the battle in their favor and grant them a victory and retaliation against the continuing to war Philistines. Now, back in 1 Samuel 4, 5 through 11, we were told of when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was what? Defeated. And every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Now, the ark remained in the possession of the Philistines for seven months and things did not go well for them during those seven months as the Lord struck them with tumors. Now, the Philistines decided that the best course of action was to get rid of the ark, send it back to Israel, if indeed it was the God of Israel who was afflicting them. So they set the ark on a specially built cart, along with a chest that they filled with replicas of their tumors made out of gold and rats as well. And some commentators see there to be a correlation between the rats and the tumors, somehow the rats being the cause of those tumors. Now, they also did something interesting. They chose two milk cows to pull this cart, and then they locked up these milk cows' calves. Now, nature would say, one, that the calves being separated from their mother would be making all kinds of racket, and the mother by nature would turn around and go back to their calves. Now, they wanted to do this because it was going to prove to them if there was something of a supernatural nature being involved uh, with their tumors and whatever else was plaguing them via the rats they made replicas of out of gold. Their idea was these mother cows would naturally return to their calves, but if they continue on their way and do not return to their calves, we'll know that it was indeed the God of Israel who struck them. Now the cows did indeed make their way along the road. They finally came to the Israeli city of Beth Shemesh, where the people rejoiced to see the ark. Now, the Levites who lived in Beth Shemesh 
then took the art or, or the uh, cart rather and cut up the pieces of wood and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, in 1 Samuel 6:19 through 7:1, we're told then he the Lord struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. I always found this to be kind of interesting, and we highlighted this back when we studied uh, 1 Samuel in the earlier chapters, that Bethshemus was struck with this great plague. So they said to their brethren, hey, the ark is here. Why don't you guys come get it? Some kind of friend, indeed. Now... Interesting, we find our chapter tonight, some 70 years have advanced from the uh, events we just read of. The ark was brought to the house of Abinadab, and David is now wanting to bring it into Jerusalem. He wants to draw the attention of the Israeli people back to God and the symbol of his presence, and that being the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is something he was wanting to make right that Saul should have done long ago. Now, up to this point, Israel had used the ark as uh, really to no avail. It was kind of a lucky charm, so to speak, to bring them good fortune in battle. We noted that the ark had been captured by the Philistines and then released by the Philistines. This is the original catch and release program. We captured the ark and we released it right away. And then the people of Beth Shemesh violated the word of God by looking into the ark and tens of thousands of lives were lost. And David says, let's go get the ark, strike up the band, bring it here where it belongs. Now, the first thing I want you to pay attention to tonight is that David's heart was right in wanting to do this. He had a reverence for the Lord. He had a respect for the ark that represented the presence of the Lord on the earth. But... His actions, however, even though his intentions were right, his actions ignored both the past and God's word. And the outcome of his initial efforts were the same as those, uh, what those had experienced who went before him and erred before him. Now, our title tonight is simply this, God's will, God's way. God's will, God's way. Now, the Lord has his own way of doing things. Does anybody recognize what I'm talking about tonight? He's got his own kind of timing. He's got his own means by which he acts on our behalf. I've always thought it rather interesting that he told Abram, whose name meant high father, that he changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, that he was going to have descendants like the stars of heaven in number and the sand of the seashore. So how many children did he give to Abraham and Sarah? One. Wouldn't you think that it had triplets or something at least to get the ball rolling? But the Lord moves in his own ways and he does things according to his own desire and means. Now, let's set this up a little further with this. Was it God's will that the ark be in Jerusalem? 
Absolutely. We know that from both First Kings 9 and Second Chronicles 7. So here's our question to lead us into our time tonight. Did God care how it arrived there? Well, obviously he did based on the things we read a few moments ago. Yes, it was God's will for the ark to be brought into Jerusalem, but God wanted it brought to Jerusalem his way. And his way was clearly defined in his word. Now, Numbers 4.15 tells us, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Koath shall come and carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing, lest what? Lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting, which the sons of Koath are to do what? Are to carry. That would be including the ark. The ark was to be carried by the Levites, not pulled on a cart. No one was to look into the ark, as we'll see in a bit. And the men of Beth Shemesh are proof that even after 400 years, God still wanted his will done his way. And I think we could say the same of our day. Amen. So let's see what we can learn from what David learned when he ignored doing God's will, God's way. So we'll start with verses one through eight. Would you stand and read with me, please? Second Samuel chapter six, verses one through eight. Verse one, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up there the ark, bring from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ayo, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ayo went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they had come to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. You may be seated. Now, a little clarity can be gleaned as to these opening verses, especially verses 1 and 2, from a quick look at a portion of First Chronicles. Now, another thing I'll note is that uh, Baal Judah, also known as Jehuda, means the lords of Judah. And this was simply another name for Kirjath-Jerim. It is where the leaders of the tribe of Judah lived. Now, in First Chronicles 13, 1 to 4, we're told more details that are uh, eliminated from or skipped over in our verses tonight, where First Chronicles says, Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, 
If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to the priests and the Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the who? All the people. Now, let me just pause and say this. If it is of the Lord, it doesn't matter if it seems good to us. If it's of the Lord, we just do it, right? Whether it seems right, whether it seems good to us or not. Now, a couple of things here. One, David sends for the priests and the Levites, which is the right thing to do. Because they were the ones who God had ordained to carry the ark. Second, they built a cart upon which to carry the ark, which was the wrong thing to do. Yet David even commissioned two of Abinadab's descendants. The word son simply means descendants. Remember, over 70 years had passed to escort the ark in honor of their family's guardianship of the ark for the last 70 plus years. Now, David then has the Israeli Philharmonic provide the music and all Israel joined in the music played before the Lord. Now, they arrive at a place described as Nishan's threshing floor. And when the oxen pulling the cart stumbled, it appeared that the ark was going to fall and Uzzah, with good intentions, put out his hand to steady the ark and the Lord struck him dead for doing so. And David was angered by this and called the place Perez Uzzah, which means the breach of Uzzah. Now, was it God's will for the ark to be in Jerusalem? Yes, we've already established that fact. Did God, did God's people have a written directive as to how the ark was to be carried and by whom the ark was to be carried? Yes, they did. Why David ignored the directives of God, we do not know. But there's one good candidate that would allow for some uh, calculated speculation, so to speak. Now, God struck the Philistines with tumors for possessing the ark. But nothing happened to them, and the plague was actually lifted from them when they sent the ark on its way, on its own, on a cart. Now... It could be that with all the talk about the ark and how they recovered it and how it wound up at the house of Abinadab and Kirjath-Jerim for some 70 years could have brought up the subject of it being carried on an ark. Now, they got it back on a cart and it would certainly be easier to bring it to Jerusalem for some 10 miles on the cart instead of the shoulders of the Levites. Now, There's a myriad of things we could derive from this, not the least of which is a reminder that God's will is not subject to human adaptation. We don't take God's will and make our own amendments to it. Somebody say something tonight. Amen. And we can also say that we don't take our cues from what the world does. We take our cues from what God says. And that's how we determine what it is we are to do. Now we can also say obedience to the word is more important than what we feel. And no matter how we feel about it, no matter the collective or consensus of thought amongst people, if it is what pleases the Lord, that's what we do. Now, all of those things are valid truths, and all of them are within the context of our verses. 
But here's the first thing I want us to consider tonight based on what we've looked at thus far. Listen to tonight. This is a very timely word in the day and age in which we live. Here it is. Personal sincerity is not a substitute for biblical, biblical accuracy. Personal sincerity is not a substitute for biblical accuracy. Now, look at the scene that's in front of us. David carefully organizes the events. He hires all the right people, the orchestra, the player. He brings in 30,000 chosen men to escort the ark. And uh, much of that is for protection and also for the ceremony and uh, the great numbers and how this the whole scene would be viewed. And a special cart is uh, built and designed or designed and built. And an orchestra is employed. Excuse me, of all kinds of wind, string instruments, as well as percussion. And we're told they are playing before the Lord. They are playing worship before the Lord. They are playing songs of praise before the Lord. And they do all of these things with a sincere intent of having an event that would honor the Lord and celebrate the arrival of the ark into the city of David or Jerusalem. Now... Excuse me. There was one problem with this whole scene. And it goes back to the word. <coughs> Excuse me. In Exodus 25, 10 to 14, the people were instructed to make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. Excuse me. And you shall make a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark that the ark may be what? Carried by them. We already established who was to do the carrying. And here we see the manner in which it was to be carried. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Now, again, there was no lack of sincerity in this ceremony. There was a lack of obedience. And we could say, did it really matter how the ark was carried? Mattered to God. And if it mattered to God, it should matter to us. Now, (coughs) there are a lot of people today who sincerely believe that there are things in the Bible that are out of step with culture. And that the church should be in agreement today with what everyone believes and not hang on to things that most people don't agree with. Now, the instructions on how the ark was to be carried were over 400 years old at that time. And it is possible that carts were of a higher quality than they were 70 years earlier and built better in Israel than by the Philistines. And uh, the fact was, carrying something as heavy as a gold-plated box of acacia wood just wouldn't make sense to anyone at that time. But apparently it was still very appropriate in the eyes of God. And in his opinion, which is the only one that counts, we ought to do what the Lord says. Amen? God still wants his will done his way, even though society 
and many in the church today do not agree with the word of God. Now let's look at 9 through 19. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of God had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David obviously wasn't a Baptist. Here he is out there dancing. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, David's daughter, or Saul's daughter, rather, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected it, Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisin. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Now, What happened at the threshing floor of Nashon put fear into David and his question, though the answer was obvious, was sincere as anything else that had been going on around him. He didn't know how to get the ark to Jerusalem after what had just happened, though it does appear that he used the cart to take uh, the ark to the house of Obed-Edom. Now the blessing upon the house of Obed-Edom for the three months the ark was there told David that moving the ark to Jerusalem wasn't the problem. God didn't have a problem with him bringing the ark up. Otherwise, Obed-Edom's house would not have been blessed. Now, we also know that he actually figured out what the problem was because we had mentioned in our verses, in verse 13, that those were bearing the ark of the Lord. In other words, they were carrying the ark. But even before that, David was moving in the right direction because 1 Chronicles 26, 8 says, all these were the sons of Obed-Edom, their sons and their brethren, able men with strength for the work, 62 of Obed-Edom. Now, this is part of a lengthy list of those who were of the priesthood and under the list of uh, Kohathites who were responsible for the transport and the care of the ark. So David sends it to the house of Obed-Edom, who is of the family of those who were to care for the ark. And as soon as David got back under the plan of God and the directives of God, the blessings started to flow once again, which gave David the confidence to bring the ark the rest of the way on up to Jerusalem and to do it God's way. Now in 1 Chronicles 15, 11 to 15, and David had called for Zadok and Abiathar the priest, and for the Levites, Uriel, Asahiah, Aya, Joel, uh, Shemaiah, 
Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, obviously from Obed-Edom's house, and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God where? On their shoulders by its what? Poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now, one thing worth noting is that in neither case, the first attempt to bring it to Jerusalem or the second, did the Lord rebuke or correct David for the extravagance of the ceremony. And I think this is important to point out. Because the final leg of the journey, the production was bigger than the first part. But this time, sincerity and obedience were combined with shouts of praise, obviously, and blasts of the shofar, which accompanied the celebration. Now, I think we all would recognize and readily agree that God is worthy of our best. He is worthy of our best efforts. All that we do, we should do our best And go all out for him. And if ever there was a place that ought to be filled with rejoicing, it ought to be the church. It ought to be where God's people gather. But it always seems like there are some folks who hold the verse 16 lurking out there. Now, of course, like a good Christian, I'm talking about people at other churches, not people here. Now, it's interesting that Michael is called Saul's daughter rather than David's wife. And this is fitting in that she is showing the same qualities that her dad was plagued with when it came to the things of the Lord. Now, how David expresses his worship and adoration of the Lord causes her to despise him in her heart. And this was a fact that she couldn't hide, as we'll see in a moment. Now, as the ark arrives and is placed in the tabernacle that David made for it, Burnt and peace offerings are made before the Lord, followed by the distribution of a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a raisin cake with apple butter. To the That's what my grandma used to give us. I couldn't help but think of that. Raisin bread with apple butter, just brought back good, whatever. To the whole multitude of men and women in Israel. And after this, everyone went home. Now, this is a very familiar scene And it reminded me of another situation where things were being restored with Israel. It happened later in Israel's history. And Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12 is the text where we're told Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions, and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now, we need to understand that people had not heard the word of God for many, many years. They didn't have a copy of the Torah or the uh, Tanakh, and they had found it 
And indeed, Ezra and other Levites had read it to the people from 6 a.m. until noon. And the response of the people was they were on their faces before God, worshiping him, prostrate before him. And when they arose and the Levites were dispersed among the people to help give the sense of the understanding of what had been read, when they began to understand the word of God, the law of God, the people began to weep and Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites said, this is a holy day. We are back under the covering of the word of God. This is not a time to mourn. This is a time to rejoice. Now, in our text, a 400-year-old directive from the word of the Lord was ignored and there were grave consequences. When the word of the Lord and the ways of the Lord were returned to, there was a celebration. 400 years after the scene in our text... The word of the Lord had been ignored completely. And when the people had heard the word, they wept and worshiped. And Ezra and the Levites said, this is a time to rejoice and not to mourn. Now, here's what all that means to us. Listen tonight. Doing God's will, God's way will always lead to blessings. Doing God's will, God's way will always lead to blessings. Does God love to bless his people? Yes, he does. Absolutely. And he adds no sorrow with the blessings that he gives to us. The blessings of the Lord make one rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Now, remember, the blessings began to flow again when the ark was under the care of those who God had assigned to the task. And we too will enjoy the blessings of God when we do his will, his way. Now, we have a wonderful promise that is based on the nature and character of God. And I'll remind you, as I have many times in the past, we need to be careful about associating or appropriating things written to Israel for the church or to the church or even to us individually. However, when there is something that has to do with the nature and character of God, which is unchanging, we are free to embrace that as our own, including Deuteronomy 7, 9, that says, therefore, know the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and do what? Keep his commandments. Is our God faithful today? Does he keep his promises? Does he keep them forever? So what Deuteronomy 7, 9 says is for you and me as well as every Jew who believes. Now, it is a sad reality today that there are many Michaels around us and they don't like this and they don't like that. And they certainly wouldn't call or fall into the category of the rejoicing. And I say we just stay out of that type of mentality. This is a time to rejoice. Amen. Amen. Now, We should rejoice when the word of the Lord prevails in our lives. We should be blessed when other people are blessed for their obedience. But we also need to be sure not to confuse sincerity and emotion as a proof of legitimacy. The first part of the procession started wrong and ended wrong. The second leg of the procession started right and the people were blessed. And Deuteronomy reminds us that this will be true with the Hebraism of for a thousand generations, which means forever for those who love God and keep his commandments. That means it's still true today. So let's take a look at our last section as David heads home, likely with his feet barely touching the ground, figuratively speaking, and then he runs in to Michael. 
Verses 20 to 23. Let's pick it up there and finish our chapter off. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And what a sad scene David returns home to. He comes home to share the great blessings of the day with his own household, and he is met with a worship critic who should have been as excited as he was that God was glorified and that the ark was now in Jerusalem where it belonged. Now, Michael's criticism of David wasn't that he uh, was guilty of indecent exposure, as she mentioned the young maidens, because as his wife, she would have had every right to address that issue. So we know that wasn't the problem. Her problem was with David's attire that we read back in verse 14, where it says that David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, David, we know from this description, had taken off his king's robe, and he was wearing a linen ephod or an outer garment, which was what the common priest wore. He wasn't even dressed like the high priest or a uh, elder of among the priests or one who was teaching others. And Michael's problem was that David presented himself to the people like he was one of them. Now, in 1 Samuel 15, 7, if you remember what Samuel said to Michael's dad, Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the heads of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And Saul indeed started well. He started humble. He was intimidated by Uh, the Lord's appointment or choosing of him. Remember, he hid in the equipment when it was his day to be coronated and he didn't want anything to do with it. And then the last thing we read of him is that he is still jealous of David, still wanting to kill the one whom the Lord said would be his replacement. And Saul's kingdom and therefore household was pride-filled and disobedient time and again. And Michael seemed to be appropriately labeled in our chapter as Saul's daughter, not David's wife. Now, important thing to note, David did not allow Michael's criticism to ruin the blessings of the day. He replies by reminding her that God chose him over her own family as a ruler over Israel, and he will not allow her criticism to hinder his worship before the Lord. And then he says, and then I will humble myself in my own sight even more before the Lord. I will be even more undignified than you considered me to be. I ran across this quote in one of the commentaries I read by C.H. Spurgeon. And it would uh, do well for us all to consider this, where Spurgeon said this concerning this particular set of verses. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) Somebody say amen. amen. Now, this was David's attitude. He said, if you think that I humiliated myself publicly today, 
You haven't seen anything yet. I am going to pull out the stops even further in my worship and declaration of the greatness of God. And then he adds that the maidservants of his servants, meaning the lowest of the common people, will hold him in high esteem because he hasn't acted like he's better than them. And in verse 23, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord closed Michael's womb, but it more likely means that David and Michael's relationship and intimacy was now over. Now, I also ran across this uh, by Spurgeon concerning verse 23, where he said, a critical spirit will always lead to spiritual barrenness. And David makes a point that is stated as true in the New Testament when he says to Michael, that those she was concerned about him belittling himself in front of are the ones who are going to honor him. Now, Jesus said in Luke 18, 9 to 14, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in who? Themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple and prayed, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me as sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. David saw himself the way the tax collector saw himself, a man in need of great mercy. Michael saw herself like the Pharisee, better than everybody else, and thankful that she wasn't like the maidservants David embarrassed himself in front of. And we also find this in 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6, where the apostle writes, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with what? Humility. Here's why. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, what does uh, Peter combined here with what Jesus said, remind us of, about humility. It's that humility is not exactly what, or often what we think it is. Both David and Peter reveal to us that humility is a decision. It's a conscious act. And the word humility actually means, in its uh, proper form, humility of the mind. And therefore, it is how our thoughts are to be uh, dictated and taken captive. It speaks directly of how we see ourselves. And when we stand before God, think about this. When we stand before God, we're not going to be thinking about how terrible other people are. We're going to be thinking about how terrible we've been. Are you here tonight? We're going to be thinking, oh my, I can't believe that I didn't do this or I did do that and all those other things. We're going to be thinking about how much we need the Lord's mercy. Now, here's our last point. Yes, it's going to be about humility, kind of. Now, here's the, the, our takeaway for the final point for the night. Listen, God is honored by our attitude, not just our actions. God is honored by our attitude, not just our actions. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced at one time or another seeing somebody do something for someone that was clearly out of obligation or it was done begrudgingly. 
And if the attitude cancels out the action in our minds, we would do well to remember that the Lord sees things the same way. Only he sees things that we can't see. He looks beyond the externals and into the heart. Now, in Matthew 23, 23 to 28, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done, the, the prior things, without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, or beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, we might even go as far to say that God is honored more by our attitude than our actions, because some people can do things that outwardly appear to be right, but inside, as Jesus said, there's hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, we need to be concerned, obviously, about our own attitude and actions above those of anyone else. And it's not that we stay silent about doctrinal errors or blatant hypocrisy. Jesus wasn't, and we don't need to be either, but we do need to speak the truth in love. But we also need to remember that he's the one who was sinned against by those things and not us. And we need to keep a right perspective on ourselves by comparing ourselves really to God and not to other people. And when we see ourselves before God and recognize all he has done and the mercy we have received, we're going to find ourselves making decisions like David to be even more humble in our own sight, to see ourselves as in need of God's mercy and grace. Now, Paul also covered this same mentality in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, where he talked about he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Now, I've heard all kinds of crazy things taught about that. But this is talking about the attitude, not the amount or the action. It's talking about the attitude of the privilege of giving. And it is an honor to give to the work of the Lord. Amen? And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now, this was the heart of David in his efforts to give honor, praise, and thanks to the Lord. His heart was cheerful. In what he did, and he wasn't going to let Michael rip him off. He was cheerful in what he gave, and God received honor for it. So, let's not allow a critical spirit to lead to spiritual barrenness in our own lives. And remember that God is honored and pleased by our attitudes, not just our actions. Doing his will his way always leads to what? Blessings. Doing his will our way, not so much. And remember, personal sincerity doesn't replace biblical accuracy. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, and many are today. Now, God's will done God's way is the best way to approach every day. How's that for a rhyme to wind up our time? That's all I got. 
But we need to do things the way the Lord would have us to do them. And this is a tremendous object lesson, especially in the days in which we now live, where so many things are just viewed as irrelevant and unnecessary. And as we talked about over the past couple of Sundays, some of the things we believe in today are even viewed as evil because people don't agree with them. But our test case in front of us says doing God's will, God's way is important to him. So it should be to us as well. Amen. And Father, we are grateful for our time together tonight. Thank you for this marvelous chapter. And thank you, Lord, that um, the thing and the journey, the procession and the celebration didn't end when it began wrong. But you allow for corrections and completions of what we had hoped and wanted to do in honor to you. So, Lord, we thank you that you uh, are the repairer of the breach. Uh, You are the restorer of years eaten by the canker worm of the past and the other, the swarming locusts and the other things that seek to devour our thought life. And Lord, I pray for all of us that in these last days, that as we talk about so often, Lord, that we would simply stand fast on your word and do so in love. And Lord, that we would also make the decision, as David did and Peter wrote of, to be humble in our approach to other people understanding that without you, we can do nothing, and without you, we are nothing. But we also thank you, we are not without you. And therefore, because you are in us, Lord, we have the hope of heaven awaiting us. So we thank you for these truths tonight. We pray that you would bless us now as we go. And Father, I pray that you would give us that uh, unction of the Spirit, Lord, to speak of Jesus in this time where Uh, Lord, everything has been replaced that was once sacred about this season or most of it. Nativity scenes are rare today. Christmas carols that speak of your birth and the glory of the the angel who came and spoke (coughs) spoke of the or to the shepherds about your coming and songs of the three kings who came to visit you as the song goes. Lord, all these things are so rare today. And yet, we know that they are true. So, Lord, help us to approach even this season your way and celebrate the birth of Christ. Whatever day uh, he may have been born on, Lord, is irrelevant. The point is, this is the day that the church has decided to celebrate. You came into the world. So, Lord, may your name be on our lips. And may we be telling others about the child born, the son given, the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. And Lord, we thank you for our time tonight. And Lord, bless us, we pray, as we go our way. And may we do your will, your way, from this day forth and forevermore. Amen.